Hello, uh, I'm Matt Rajansky, director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome everybody this uh, morning, afternoon, evening to our third installment of the Global Perspectives series, which highlights relations between Russia and various other countries around the world for American and global audiences. Uh, today, we'll be joined by my wonderful colleague, Marissa Kurma of the Wilson Center's Middle East program, as well as Tarek Osman uh, for a conversation on Egypt-Russia relations. Uh, we were just chatting before we went live about this, uh, the degree to which this topic received a lot of attention uh, during the Cold War, but I think relatively speaking less uh, in recent years, even though, of course, Russia is uh, very active in the Middle East, uh, and I think there's a lot to discuss. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, before I introduce Marissa, who will uh, introduce Tarek, I want to remind folks that you can uh, keep up with all of our work at the Kennan Institute. Uh, via publications on our website, as well as our podcasts, Kennan X and the Russia File, uh, of course, references to George F. Kennan's famous diplomatic career, uh, as well as our blogs, The Russia File and Focus Ukraine. Uh, throughout the course of this event, including right now, if you already want to, you can submit questions via email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org. That's K-E-N-N-A-N at wilsoncenter.org. Uh, you can tweet at Kennan Institute, uh, or you can post on Facebook, and please do include your name and affiliation uh, when you send your questions. Uh, now let me introduce Marissa, uh, who leads the Middle East program at the Wilson Center, is enormously accomplished uh, in the region, uh, in the United States, in Europe. She was previously a non-resident fellow in the International Security Program at New America. Uh, she has leadership experience working in a range of development projects in the Middle East, focused on economic development, the Syrian refugee crisis, education, uh, youth, gender development, and governance. Additionally, she served as director of the office of Jordan's Prince Ali bin al-Hussein from 2010 to 2013, as well as as press attache and director of the Information Bureau of Jordan's Embassy in Washington, D.C. from 2003 to 2010. Her master's in public administration is from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Uh, her master's in, of science in international security and foreign policy is from Georgetown and her bachelor's in political science is from McGill. So with no uh, further delay, Marissa, the floor is yours. Thank you, Matt, uh, for a very kind introduction and thanks uh, to you and the uh, Kinnan Institute for leading this excellent series um, on Russia's relations with different parts of the world. Uh, the Middle East program is delighted that this discussion will be focused on um, Russia and Egypt. So we will definitely zoom into this uh, relationship today, which, uh, as Matt mentioned, um, has not received as much attention since the Cold War. And it has ebbed and flowed, uh, particularly since the days of the Cold War. And given the new heights this relationship has reached with renewed um, economic, security, and political relations today, there's certainly a lot to unpack. Um, I uh, read a recent interview by the Russian ambassador in Cairo uh, that said that um, the uh, Russian direct investment in Egypt um, today stands at or has reached $7.4 billion, which is um, quite significant. We will we'll probably hear a lot more about where this relationship is from our um, guest expert uh, from Egypt, um, my friend Tarek Osman. Uh, to walk us through not only the um, evolution of this relationship, uh, but how these relations also fit into the larger regional geopolitical context. 
Um, Tariq um, has written many books, including Egypt on the Brink and Islamism, a History of Political Islam. He's also written and presented several BBC documentaries, including Minds at War, uh, Sands of Time, a History of Saudi Arabia, and The Making of the Modern Arab World. Tariq, thank you so much from, for uh, joining us today from Egypt, Omid Dunya, as we say um, in Arabic, which translates to the mother of the world. So um, I will hand this over to you and um, we look forward to your remarks. Uh, thank you, Marissa, and thank you, Matt, for having me. And uh, I was just telling before we start, Marissa and Matt, as an Egyptian, and as a, I like to think of myself as a storyteller, I have a tendency to speak forever. So I leave it to Marissa and to Matt to stop me if I just keep talking forever. So what I hope I'll be able to do in the next 15 minutes to give you what I think are the most important milestones of the relationship, um, and what I think are the maybe four or five key areas in the current um, dynamics between the two countries. And hopefully that would be enough uh, food for thought to stir some questions. So to start with, with the history, um, I think the first point of real interaction, modern history, has more or less been mid to late 19th century. And I think it is interesting to go that way back because the mutual player in between Egypt and Tsarist Russia, if you'd like, at the time was the Ottoman Empire, which obviously has resonances today to Turkey. At the time, both countries were more or less enemies of the Ottoman Empire. Russia obviously was a very strategic opponent, if not enemy, but also Egypt under the modern evolution of the country into, into the modern Egypt, if you'd like, which started in the early 19th century, very much tried to get out of the dominance of the Ottoman Empire. And to cut a very long story short, there were two interesting dynamics in the Egyptian mind regarding Russia. One is Russia is more or less, at the time, weakening Turkey in its, or the Ottoman Empire, basically, in the, its eastern um, expansion, which was very helpful to the budding Egyptian empire of the 19th century to more or less expand northwards and effectively take control of the Eastern Mediterranean. Also resonances to today, where the Eastern Mediterranean is a very important dynamic between Egypt and Russia today. We'll come to that. The problem at the time was that Russia presented itself in the Eastern Mediterranean, in the Middle East, as some sort of protector of the um, Christian and specifically Orthodox minority in, in the Middle East at the time. And though the Egyptian nascent empire was not really secular, still it was a bit of a problem for a country that has Al-Azhar, the seat of learning of Sunni Islam, to uh, more or less have that kind of foreign project coming to the Middle East. That was the point of departure, if you'd like. Fast forward, there were some interesting interactions between the Tsarist family, actually, royal family and the Egyptian royal family, but that is probably uh, fun for some gossip, if you'd like. Uh, and there were actually some interesting marriages, but nothing important in the milestone of the relationship between the two countries. The big other moment or milestone came in 1956, the very famous Suez 
war, as we call it in the Middle East, Suez crisis, as it is known in the West, when two things happened. One, Egypt proved itself as Egypt here as revolutionary Egypt, if you like, under Gamal Abdel Nasser or President Nasser of Arab nationalism, proved himself or Egypt as a very important enemy, certainly an opponent of what at the time was referred to as Western imperialism in the Middle East, which many people would say, especially the Suez crisis was the biggest blow uh, towards the end at the sunset of the British Empire. Why this was particularly interesting because the Soviet Union at the time certainly was looking at the globe and seeing which countries in what was used to be called at the, at the time the third world was potential allies, countries to potentially bet on me if you'd like or develop the relationship with because they could be allies in the global confrontation with the West which was not only the old imperial powers of the time, Britain and France, but the rising power that was effectively taking huge, don't want to say ownership, but casting its influence over the Middle East, of course, at the time, the United States. What I'm trying to say is in 1956 and all the way up to the early 1960s, there was a meeting of minds, if you like, between the Arab nationalist project under Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, which was very much anti-West, maybe by design, some would say by circumstances, but effectively anti-West, and the West was anti-it, and the other superpower at the time, which was the Soviet Union. That relationship, I think, was very important in the psyche of the Egyptian, as well as Arab nationalist project during the late 1950s and throughout the, the 1960s, early 1970s. An important point to keep in mind here is that all the big wars that Egypt fought, whether 1967, which was a defeat for Egypt, or 1973, which strategically at least is seen in Egypt as was of favorable outcomes, these wars, and between them there was something in Egypt we call it the war of attrition, basically a war between Egypt and Israel between 1967 1973, all of these wars were fought by Russian slash Soviet arms. Why all of that is quite important? Because in the Egyptian psyche and many people in the Arab world, the Russians were our helpers, our allies, if you like, during very important period. In the 1970s, two things happened that I think also are important to reflect on. One, after 1973, Egypt, the war, 1973, the Yom Kippur War, as it is known in the West, Egypt and later on a number of, of Arab countries effected some strategic change from being in the Soviet camp to basically migrate to the American camp. The details here are quite interesting, but why it's also quite important to draw attention to it because many Russian friends I spoke to over the past 20 years, especially in the world of think tanks in Russia or foreign policy diplomacy, they remember that point as almost a moment of abandonment that you, the Arabs, you, the Egyptians, after we stood by you during the wars, now you are in the pursuit of peace, that now you got some of your lands, you shifted gear and went to the American camp. And then 19, 
1979 happened, which is the, um, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And throughout the 1980s, many, many Arab countries, primarily in the Gulf, but also to some extent Egypt, lent some sort of support to the Afghan Mujahideen, the Islamic or Islamist militants who were fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. And that also, I think, is an important hallmark. It had many, many repercussions after that, but also, I think, as a strategic line in the sand, uh, as an Arab, I use these analogies, but basically a line in the sand, I think, in the Soviet slash Russian mind where some Arab countries, including Egypt at the time, at the time did take a position that was not certainly in, um, anyway, was not certainly uh, pro the Soviets at the time. That's a bit of history, if you'd like. To move ahead, if we are looking today, with all of these milestones of the relationship in the backgrounds, what issues are there between these two countries and also behind Egypt, some of its alliances in, in the Arab world, whether we're talking about Saudi Arabia, we're talking about the United Arab States, Arab, Arab Emirates, what issues are there today? And in order not to speak for the next 30 minutes, I would just highlight maybe three, four issues that are important for the relationship today. And the first one of them is the future of the Eastern Mediterranean and particularly of Syria. Some people say, well, the war in Syria ended, the Assad regime won, it is now entrenched in its place, it has secured its authority over quite a substantial part of um, Syria. All of that is absolutely correct. But I always say to people who invoke that, that argument that that all happened through partnerships with allies, primarily Russia, that guaranteed the success of the Assad regime. But bear in mind that the investments that Russia has done now in the Eastern Mediterranean, particularly in Syria, are dramatic, which means that Russia is there to stay for a long time, certainly for the foreseeable future. And that Syria is strategically important for the Arab world and particularly for Egypt for many reasons. So my point is the future of the Eastern Mediterranean, particularly of Syria, is an important dossier between the two countries today. The second dossier or issue to keep in mind in thinking about the relationship today is North Africa and particularly Libya. I argue that Libya is more strategically important for Egypt than it is for Russia. I'm happy to be challenged on that, but that's at least my thinking. But also Russia has invested much less than it did in Syria, but still it did invest a bit in Libya. And maybe, maybe there is not necessarily, the agenda is not necessarily coinciding. The interests are not necessarily coinciding in Syria as well as in Libya. There are some points that they, the two sides agree upon, some points I think strategically do not agree upon. But anyway, the second point to keep in mind is Libya and what will happen to it. The third point is of course gas, the Eastern Mediterranean gas. That's crucial because arguably one of the most important cards, strategic, if we're playing poker here, uh, for Russia is its supply of gas to many, many countries in Europe. Now, the Eastern Mediterranean gas is 
its, its future is not just for improving the financial and fiscal positions of a number of countries in the Middle East, but also because of its export potential. To where? To Europe. So it's potentially, very potentially, a competitor for Russian gas going to Europe. Leaving aside the economic slash financial dimension, there is the strategic dimension here. And I think that's also a very important issue to keep in mind, especially, again, that the interests of both sides might not be coinciding. The fourth point, which I think also merits some attention, is arms. The Middle East buys, and Egypt as well, buys a lot of Russian arms right now. And that obviously has financial uh, implications, but I also think it is important in the wider global arms trade, which I think is important for Russia strategically, not just financially, that there is demand for that uh, kind of armaments, especially in areas in which there is very large levels of, of buying arms and, and um, in which the other side, the United States, obviously sees it as a huge market for it. So you see the dimension I'm trying to, to highlight. The final point, and then I will stop, and I hope all of you are still awake, is the meeting of ideas, I think, which many people, I think, do not pay enough attention to. One of important points in which, or over which, the Egyptian side, especially the current Egyptian administration, has a meeting of minds with the Russian uh, administration, at least as I understand it, is the idea of the state. The idea of the powerful, centralized uh, state that takes care of its people, that is, uh, again, very centralized, uh, very assertive in its dealing with its own society as well as with its neighborhood, and that has also some sort of expectations of spheres of influence around it. And what I'm trying to say here is that leaving aside interests and uh, disagreements or meeting and, and diversions of interests in different parts of the Middle East, Certainly, there is a meeting of minds between the two administrations regarding the nature of the state, the nature of the political structure. And keep in mind that many people in the Middle East, especially, or including in Egypt, not necessarily especially, but including in Egypt, see the Russian experience during the 1990s when the state seemed, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the state seemed, at least for people, at least in the Arab world, seen that the Russian state is being diluted, is being decentralized, is being weakened, and somehow the success, if you'd like, as many people in the Middle East see it, of the Putin regime over the past 20 years, of building up the centralization, the state, asserting its authority, re-establishing some sort of a sphere of influence, and standing up against potential imagined whatever you want to say, enemies, all of that was seen as a very interesting case study to, to, to look at and to delve into, especially given what happened in the Arab world over the past 10 years, what has been referred to as the Arab Spring, I like to call it the Arab uprisings, but where a number of Arab countries fell, centralization certainly fell, and other Arab countries saw it as a huge threat to their existence even, certainly to the centralization, and many looked 
at the Russian experience and so a number of things to learn from, at least to study and see how they can adapt them to their own circumstances. I hope it wasn't too long. I apologize. I took longer than 15 minutes, uh, but I hope that stirs some uh, ideas. Well, uh, let me thank you uh, very much, Tarek and, and Marissa as well, and uh, invite you uh, both to jump in now on a conversation. Uh, we've got questions uh, coming in from the audience already, and, and uh, I certainly want to invite Anyone else who's interested in asking, uh, email kenan at wilsoncenter.org, tweet to at Kenan Institute, or post on our Facebook page. Um, but, but let me start with this. Uh, so I, I appreciated the broad sweep of the, of the history between Russia and Egypt. Um, and it's interesting that you began, in effect, with Russia, Egypt, and what was then Ottoman Turkey, uh, because it feels in some ways like we have come full circle. Uh, recently, uh, Russia and Egypt held this very interesting demonstrative naval exercise in the Black Sea. I don't pretend for a moment to be uh, a naval expert or a Black Sea expert, but it seems to me that may have been attempting to send a message. Uh, and uh, if so, I suppose the reasonable question is to whom? Uh, was Ankara perhaps the intended recipient of that message? And if I can add kind of a a very blunt question. Um, it, it seems to me in my cursory understanding of, of the history of the region that there has always been a kind of rivalry uh, between Istanbul, Ankara, and Cairo for putative leadership of uh, this part of the world. And I wonder where does Russia come down on that, especially now uh, with its very tense influx relationship uh, with Turkey. You mentioned, for example, the, the issue of uh, gas transit that certainly plays into the relationship, but there's also a war in the South Caucasus in which Turkey is quite actively involved. So I put a tremendous amount on the table, but let me invite uh, both of you to comment on that, please. Who wants to go first? I see Marissa's on mute. Uh... Tarek, you go ahead and then I'll... Uh... I was hoping that you go ahead so that I develop something that is reasonably um intelligent to answer this very interesting question by Matt. Matt, I don't know. The, the real answer is you really put a lot on the table and I will not escape your question, but I'll think aloud uh, by putting a few points and, and I would really look forward to, to Marissa's uh, insights on them. I think the, the first point which you alluded to that we, we have made a full circle, I think we've made many circles actually over the past 100, 150 years in, uh, in the Middle East in which absolutely there has been recurring, I don't want to say confrontation, but it was never really confrontation, but competition over who has the, who sets the agenda in the Middle East uh, and specifically in the Eastern Mediterranean. And often it was Egypt, Cairo, uh, for a very long time. It was Istanbul, not Ankara, you're under the, the Ottoman history. I mean, keep in mind, Turkey ruled the Eastern Mediterranean as well as Egypt for over 400 years. So there's also some sort of entrenched expectation, if you like, that we, in this case, if you assume Turkey, we have a history, we have some sort of a historical right, if you like. And also, I would say many powers in the Gulf that need to be brought into the discussion here. In the period from the mid-late 1970s and arguably until now, 
whether it is Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, or later on Abu Dhabi, because of its financial power, there were a lot of Gulf influence over uh, parts of the Eastern Mediterranean, such as Lebanon, for example. What I'm trying to say is, point number one, your point about competition between these players um, is, is very true. But the new factor, and, and that's maybe the key point that I want to put on the table as an answer to you, to your question is Russia was missing from the Middle East for a very long time, certainly from the late 1970s when Russia, as you know much better than I do, entered quite a, a slow period during the, the later years of uh, Brezhnev, excuse my bad pronunciation of Russian, but and of course, during the, the, uh, the 80s, and even when the time when Andropov, or Andropov, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, uh, for two years when he led the Soviet Union, a number of people in the Middle East looked back that Russia, Russia will rise again in front of uh, Reagan, US Reagan Kennedy as, that was very brief, but then it was very clear in the second half of the 80s that, that Russia, or the Soviet Union, I mean, was really on not very stable ground. And then the fall of, Soviet Union, 89, 1990, 1991, until, until the mid 2000s, you have at least 25 years, if not 10 years before that, in which Soviet Union slash Russia was away from the Middle East. And I think from a Russian perspective, though you would know better, but I think from a Russian perspective, the return of Russia to the Middle East. And I really look forward to, to your contribution here, Marissa. The return of Russia to the Middle East, I think, has value in Russia. I think Russia being at the top of the Eastern Mediterranean in uh, Syria, Russia being uh, of, of some influence today, actually, in Lebanon and the discussions in Lebanon, Russia having very close relationships, including militarily, as you alluded to, Matt, with Egypt, Russia is back. And that was a time, or that is uh, after at least 25 years in which the United States basically ruled supreme in the Middle East. And I think many people in the Arab world, particularly in Egypt, understand the value that they are bringing to Russia by allowing Russia or inviting Russia or seeing points of interaction and mutual benefit with Russia here. So this is a point that I think is valuable, not just for Russia in the Middle East, not just as meeting of minds between Egypt or parts of the Arab world and Russia, but also in the interaction, I think, between Moscow and Ankara elsewhere, such as in the Caucasus. I think the dynamics in the Middle East are another card here, if, if, you, if, if you see what I mean. I will stop, otherwise I'll keep repeating myself, and I, I'm sure Marissa will share some lines. Yeah, let me, I want to turn to Marissa, but just one comment uh, that I think may be helpful for, for some of our listeners. It's interesting you bring up Brezhnev and Andropov. I actually think the far more relevant precedent is much more recent, which is Yevgeny Primakov, who was foreign minister and prime minister of Russia, but more important than that, who was in many ways Vladimir Putin's foreign policy mentor. And, uh, you know, those listening will probably know that Primakov was the ultimate Russian Arabist and is I think, very much associated with uh, active Russian diplomacy in the region. But Marissa, please. Thanks, Matt. Um, and thanks, Tare. Um, I think um, just bringing this back to how um, Egypt and Turkey see each other today with all the different geopolitical changes that we've seen in the region 
um, you know, first of all, there's the Muslim Brotherhood card. Um, you know, Erdogan leads the AKP, um, and uh, and Egypt has has a very long and um, uh, uh, difficult, uh, challenging uh, history with the Muslim Brotherhood, um, and many of the rising powers um, or the have you know risen powers in the region, uh, primarily the UAE. Um, uh, with regards to and how they see the Muslim Brotherhood very much come close to Egypt to to where we stand on this particular issue. So so there there is, I think, a commonality there as well, the need to um, uh, where, where Turkey is seen as sort of the new enemy in this new arrangement. Um, Egypt, as we've also seen a few years ago, joined the quartet, joined the UAE, or is part of the quartet, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain um, against Qatar, um, which is seen as um, a very close ally uh, to Turkey as well. So there, there, that aspect of it is, I think, um, part of this dynamic um, uh, and I've, I've seen some commentary by military or naval analysts who also agree with the statement that you made earlier, Matt, that this, this naval exercise was definitely sort of a show of force vis-a-vis um, uh, uh, -vis, uh, vis -vis Turkey. Um, and then uh, going back to some of the points that you made earlier, Tarek, you mentioned both Syria and Libya. Those are also two very important fronts, you know, obviously in the, in the Russia-Egypt relationship, but that's where also Turkey is very heavily involved um, and not on the same side. So I think those are all the different points that we see that, um, you know, bring, you know, or probably bring Russia and Egypt even closer together, um, you know, politically and strategically. Um, I, I want to uh, turn back if I can, uh, and, and of course we can, I, I think we should continue to revisit the geopolitics here, and, and I've got many questions from the audience on it, but I want to turn back to uh, this interesting point that you ended on, Tarek, which was um, sort of a, a point of um, political ideology, maybe domestic politics for two, um, I try to be careful banding about the term authoritarian when I don't know a lot about the governments, but governments that maybe have mixed records on you know, freedom of speech issues and things like that. Uh, I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the degree to which uh, two large countries, two countries with very robust uh, intellectual and political traditions that may see themselves, probably definitely see themselves as centers of their own universes, might nonetheless look to one another uh, as kind of experimental Petri dishes. And I can give you the example from the Russian case there is no question that Russians, both on the government side uh, and on the opposition civil society side, uh, looked at uh, what you call the Arab uprisings and, and looked in particular at Egypt to see how the regime, how the government uh, was handling the uprising, what were the tactics and what were the ideas being put forward by the people, what worked and what didn't work. And as I say, that was important and remains important on both sides. And I'm very curious how this is seen given the amount of foment uh, in the former Soviet region, whether it's Belarus or Ukraine, or it's Russia itself, uh, the, the killing of an opposition leader beyond Russia's borders. I mean, how, how much does Russia's own struggles with domestic governance resonate in a region that has a very significant history, of course, of authoritarian governments versus the street? 
Mirosta, do you want me to, to um, address that? Matt, that was me, I think. So let me let me start. Yeah. By... Well, someone should, please, not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, there are two, three points that I think that came to my mind immediately um, from your question. The first is, it might sound it might sound a bit weird, but I don't think actually many people in this part of the world, as in in the Arab world, including Egypt, really follow russian domestic politics in detail and of course in think tanks and journalists and diplomacy and what have you but i mean in the wider sections of the society and i would argue i i follow uh arab and not just egyptian media quite well and it's it's not something that resonates a lot so for example you'll find that even relatively second third level details of american politics do get airing here and maybe the same in, in, in Britain, France. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that the internal politics of Russia and the issues concerning uh, fundamental human rights and freedom of expression and, and all of that in the Russian experience, again, outside activist groups, outside civil society, outside think tanks, outside all of that, I'm not particularly sure it is a topic that many people Follow. So if many Arab experiences, including Egypt, was or continue to be followed in, in Russia, it is not reciprocal. Uh, let, me put it, let me put it this way. However, the point I alluded to before is certainly true because I saw it clearly, not just in Cairo, but in different parts of, of the Arab world, not necessarily how the Russian regime dealt with its opponents and but certainly how Russia recreated, resuscitated, if you like, itself as a state. And here, there's a point about the mindset that I also want to underline, which is a view about the costs of that. Because you'll find many people in different parts of the Arab world, and certainly in Egypt as well, who will say, yeah, of course, in, in the building up of, of the state after many decades of weakening, there are costs regarding certain rights, there are costs regarding certain issues in the, in the situation of, or um, in the status of democracy, there are certain issues regarding this or that, but all of that is, is part of the process of rebuilding the state, of resuscitating uh, state institutions that very much weakened. And here there's another point that also gets a lot of airing in different parts of the Arab world, which is the conspiracy dimension, which I don't know how resonant it is in Russia, but it has some resonance in different parts of the Arab world, whereby there is always seen an element of Western intervention so that to weaken Arab states or to dilute some uh, state institutions, and here again comes the point of the cost, that if we were, we as an Arab societies have been weakened or have been uh, under, in, on a bad trajectory, if you'd like, for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, if we are now building ourselves up, if then of course we need to do certain sacrifices here and there. And keep in mind that there are, and then you find people invoking some uh, conspiracy issues, what have you. So this is a point I think is important to keep in mind. But it leads me to the second point I want to highlight, which is grand intellectual traditions uh, see themselves as center of their universes. And here I will not challenge you a bit, but just 
emphasize a point that I think is very important, especially in Egypt, though also in other parts of the Arab world, particularly in Egypt, that this is a historical view. Egypt, very much, many, many people in Egypt would tell you that the last 30 years were, some people will say, uh, lost period. Some people will say the uh, period of decline. Uh, some people will say in which Egypt was in the wilderness. Basically, many people will say that the fundamental problem of the era of President Mubarak were that Egypt lost a lot of its soft power, of its reach, of its influence, of its status, of the way it traditionally saw itself as the center of its universe. And that's why you find many people actually are willing to accept some of the sacrifices, some of the costs I alluded to because the idea of the Egyptian project in the Arab world, the idea of the soft power, which has political as well as economic benefits in the minds of many people, at least in Egypt, people see that resuscitating the state is not just an internal issue. It is also building up or at least recreating the soft power, the influence in the region, recreating the idea of the center of its own universe, which they see it as important psychologically, because it's part of, of how they define Egypt, but also they see it as of value politically and economically. So I think this point that you alluded to is very important, but it is, it's seen as something that was lost along the way and is now being or resuscitated, if you'd like. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but I tried to, to highlight the two points, linking the internal to the external. Great. Uh, Marissa, let me give you a chance on this, and then I do want to go to some of our audience questions. Yeah, I think very quickly, um, I think Tarek is right. The, the details of what happens on the domestic Russian scene, it's definitely covered by Arab media. But is it consumed the same way by Egyptians and other Arabs? I don't think so. I think um, even if we, when we look at recent surveys, like with regards to youth, uh, and, and as Tarek said, you have to sort of uh, take out all, uh, all those involved in you know, civil society, activism, et cetera, from that, from that, um, from that grouping. But with, with regards to the surveys, they, they showcase, particularly amongst Arab youth, that, that I think more than 70% see Russia as a key ally. Um, um, to their countries. Uh, and I think that is significant. But this is also very much um, a bit of a reaction to um, US foreign policy and the US role in the region for so long. Uh, and so as, as many start to see, you know, um, America's retreat from the region and they see Russia gaining more influence, um, you know, Russia also has Russia Leon, the, you know, Russian TV in Arabic, which is, um, uh, I don't have the numbers, but I would assume, you know, widely watched as well. Uh, I think all of these different um, uh, sort of uh, strategies that the, the, the Russian state has, um, has deployed in the region also absolutely works, but a lot of it is also in reaction to um, America's role in the region. Incidentally, that's uh, quite interesting if it's still called Russia today with the word Russia uh, in Arabic as opposed to in the English language and I think uh, European languages where it's rebranded to RT precisely in order to take Russia out of the, the equation. Uh, 
you know, I, I think that was quite intentional. So interesting that, that the Russians would still look to push something that's explicitly associated with Russia rather than uh, RT being about sort of question more, right? Kind of stirring the pot about things that are much more about the target countries than about Russia. All right, let me pivot and uh, bring in first a question from Professor Mark Katz at George Mason University. Um, he asks if you can elaborate, and, and I'll say parenthetically fairly quickly, uh, on Russian-Egyptian differences in Libya. Uh, do the differences relate to Libyan uh, petroleum or uh, which forces to ally with, or, or what, what is that about? Who wants to take that first? Marissa, go, go ahead. You, you're on. No, I was going to. You're still muted, Marissa. Can you? Okay, you're 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 unmuted. Nope, you've gone back. To, I'm sorry. Uh, okay, maybe Tarek, why don't you go ahead and we'll see if Marissa can can unmute at any point and join us. I think there's no major strategic differences in Libya as they are in Syria, for example. But um, primarily, there are differences in two things. Number one, who calls the shots? Egypt sees Libya as uh, very important for it strategically, for obvious reasons. It's, it has over, I don't know, 2,000 kilometers, uh, I don't know, let's say 1,000 miles or more, excuse if my numbers are wrong, but a dramatically long border with Libya. And it was also a porous border for a number of years from which a number of militant groups um, came into Egypt, as well as smuggling of arms. So you can see from a security point of view, as well as from a strategic point of view, there was a horrific incident in which I think 15 or more Egyptian nationals who were beheaded in Libya, which left a lot, of, a really deep mark on the Egyptian psyche because it, it was a horrific, horrendous event. So what I'm trying to say for many, many reasons, Egypt sees Libya as a very important dossier for it. And also historically, Egypt has at least a couple of million Egyptians who are working in Libya. So also from an economic point of view, Egypt has taken the game, if you like, apart from the potential Eastern Mediterranean gas. All of that means that there are many institutions in Egypt, in the foreign ministry, in the security apparatus, in the presidency, of course, who believe that they know uh, Libya very well, that they have well-developed plans for it. And since they, in their view, and I think rightly, are more or less uh, on the same page with Russia in terms of the macro outcomes required, then, uh, then they expect that they lead and more or less Russia as other allies, such as in the Gulf, for example, would lend support. Uh, so I think what I'm trying to say that maybe procedural uh, issues as opposed to strategic dimensions. But the other point that is important to highlight as a potential or as probably a difference between the two countries in Libya is Turkey. Um, certainly, to my mind at least, the point I highlighted before is that, and again, you and Marissa know Russia much more than I do, but to my mind at least, Russia sees its involvement in Libya as a card to be used also in relation to a number of stakeholders, whether it's the US, whether it's the European Union, which is a player we have not highlighted, but I think is an important player, as well as Turkey, 
in the same way that its involvement in Syria, its involvement in uh, Armenia, its involvement in, in Ukraine, all of these cards are, are used simultaneously in its interaction with a number of players, which means that it can take a certain position in Libya that because it has another position in mind, say in Armenia or in Syria, uh, as a bargaining chip with other countries. For Egypt, Libya is the second most important dossier in its foreign policy after the Nile waters, uh, security of the Nile waters. So its willingness to accept maneuvering by allies in Libya is certainly much, much less than what Russia probably would have in mind. Having said that, my final point is I have not seen a big divergence between Egypt and Russia in Libya in the past few years. Uh, okay, Marissa, are you able to join us yes, now? Yes, sorry, my Great. mask kept getting stuck. Um, uh, yeah, I, I would just add very quickly in terms of, uh, just to follow up on what Tarek said, um, yeah, both, both Russia and Egypt um, are aligned with the same group in, in Libya, you know, um, and that's uh, basically Haftar. Um, and so we see, um, we see this again, going back to sort of how this reflects the larger geopolitical scene um, in the region, uh, because that's also um, uh, this, this same group that the, that the UAE um, is supporting. So um, this, is, this is where they, they probably converge. Um, and I would leave it there because I, I don't want to get into, um, I, I'm not a, you know, Libya expert, but I think that's sort of a reflection of, of the different dynamics we see in the region. Let Matt, me, if you allow yeah. me, please, I apologize. It's going to be one quick point, because I think it is important also to highlight, which is refers to the question that you, uh, you posed at the beginning, the, the two states of mind, if you'd like. People who know Russia very well tell me that one of the things that really, to put it bluntly, pissed off Russia uh, was the way the one of its allies, which is Muammar Qaddafi, fell, and also how many people saw as some sort of potential, the likelihood, at least, idea of potential division of, of Libya. And that, that met something that coincided with something in Egypt, not regarding the, uh, the, the, the fate of Muammar Qaddafi. This was not the point. But the point of the idea of a state that was unified in the 1930s, 1940s, solidified its unity in the past 30 or 40 years, potentially going to be divided. And then the national armed forces, in, in some way, seen by Russia as well as by Egypt, asserting its force to unite the country, especially against what seemed to be the likely winner out of that potential, uh, out of what was happening, which was forces of political Islam and that were more or less supported by uh, Turkey, what have you. So what I'm trying to say is the, the view of centralization, preservance or yeah, preserving the nation state and the point that Marissa highlighted before, which I agree with, that there's also the view, strategic view against political Islam. But I would put it as a secondary point to the idea of preserving the nation state, which was very important for Egypt, and I think for Russia in this part of the world. 
You know, uh, Tarek, what you say uh, sort of dovetails with the, the questions I want to offer next from our participants, but I will simply note, I, I think what you've heard from Russian interlocutors is consistent with what I have heard um, with one refinement, which is uh, this is a case where, as you and Marissa both said about uh, the Egyptian population overall versus a very small community of, of experts, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin was particularly incensed by the treatment of of Gaddafi, but by watching someone that you know he had met with, right, someone with whom he had a relationship, uh, another uh, you know strong arm leader be be murdered essentially, in, in his view, illegally and, and against uh, the, the the grain of international law. I think for the Russian people, the portrayal of the situation in Libya and arguably more broadly, including in Syria and the region as a whole, uh, is much more about uh, the you know state broadcasting taking up the theme of. Uh, Islamic extremism, violence, and terrorism, which of course is a challenge Russians face at home. So that's very real for Russians. The idea of sort of, you know, what exactly happens with this regime, which side we're on, is a little bit more abstract. So I think in that sense, Russians and, and Egyptians have got it. You know, they've got their heads screwed on straight. They're focused on things that matter to them. Let me ask two questions in, in a kind of nested format, because I think they're related. Um, Jay Kramer uh, asks, about the uh, impact on overall bilateral relations of construction uh, and the plans to operate in the future uh, by Ross Adam of a nuclear power plant in Egypt. Uh, and then uh, Chrissy Bashai, who's on the Egypt desk at the State Department, uh, also asks about the nuclear plant, uh, but in the context of whether uh, Egypt, and, and you're welcome to specify on the level of government, on the level of ordinary people, uh, views Russia as uh, somehow uh, a second-rate power as compared to the United States uh, or China, or that being so signed up with Russia, I'm paraphrasing, the nuclear plant, uh, weapons supplies, the political ideology that you mentioned, uh, that, it, that it actually uh, looks up to Russia, views uh, the Russians as, as uh, uh, you know, sort of a state they can learn from. I think that question is maybe more on the level of the Egyptian government. Tarek, if you want to take a crack at that, we've got we've got just about ten minutes left. So if we keep this to five, then we can take another question. Um, on the first one, to be honest, I'm not very qualified to answer the uh, the point about the um, nuclear plant. To be very very frank, I don't know the dynamics behind whether whether it was just a purely strategic decision to go with Russia or whether there were also some economic uh, factors and some technological factors. So maybe Marissa, if she has an insight, um, I'll, be, I'll be grateful to, to listen. So I will not, I'll not answer that one because I really do not know. However, it is a very important project for Egypt and therefore it maybe is connected to the second dimension whereby it is another layer of very important cooperation between Egypt and uh, Russia, and therefore it is a point of entrenching the friendship, if you'd like, and the strategic alliance, if you'd like. And, but before making a comment regarding how many people, especially probably in, in, in Egypt, see the status of Russia and its future, let me highlight a point that is related to this nature of the relationship. And you highlighted uh, Primakov. Many people will tell you, actually, especially in, in, in decision-making uh, places such as foreign affairs, uh, circles, and what have you, that the Russians understand the Arab world. And of course, Primakov has actually wrote 
probably the book in, in Russia that actually is very widely available in Arabic in different Arab capitals. But I think the point that Russia understands or understands the Arab world, whether that's true or not, and whether that, that means that others in the West do not understand whether that's true or not, that's different, uh, that's a different issue. But the perception, underline the perception amongst many people in the Arab world, especially in decision circles, not just in Egypt, certainly, but also in different parts of the Arab world, particularly in the Gulf, by the way, that Russia understands the Arab world is very important because many interlocutors, interlocutors, I'm sorry, in, in the US, when they, when they talk about grand values and trajectories of evolution and modernization theory and all of that, many people in the Arab world nod. Um, and smile and, and take notes and politely say, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the back of their minds, there's this idea of, there's a lot of idealism there. And in order not to labor the point, over-labor the point, there is also in the meeting of minds often the idea amongst many people, as I said, in the Arab world, and not just in politics, in different decision circles, that Russia gets it. Russia is pragmatic enough to deal with us on, on what matters now and here. And I think that's an important uh, point. To move to the issue um, regarding, uh, by the way, just one final point. Many of the Russian ambassadors, by the way, in the Arab world speak decent Arabic, not as Primakov spoke Arabic, which was faultless. I, I listened to him personally, but many Russian ambassadors in the Middle East speak very good Arabic, which I think also is helps. Um, I think, at least based on my knowledge, People are very, uh, lots of people have admiration for how Russia rebuilt uh, the state. Uh, some people certainly have admiration of the idea of the sphere of influence that Russia has managed to resuscitate. But I don't think many people have any illusions about the, 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 the future trajectory of Russia relative to the United States as a superpower, even if many people have ideas about whether it's going up or going down or regarding the trajectory on which China is on, which is certainly evolving into a serious superpower. I'll be very surprised if you find people who would include Russia at, in that level. Sounds like uh, Egyptians would be good students of Primakov as realists. Uh, Marissa, did you want to add anything on this before I go to the final question? Yeah, just very, very quickly. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, very quickly. Um, yeah, I just to, to follow up on what Tarek said, um, we're we're seeing, you know, a new deepening of ties on so many fronts. Uh, but that's also it's interesting to look at them um, in the context of um, America's role um, and America's relationship with Egypt, because we've seen a um, bit of a decline with the Obama years and and the reaction to the Arab uprisings by the Obama administration and how that slowly sort of moved Egypt towards Russia. So people are always asking the question here, and of course, particularly with regards to the, you know, the, 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 military, um, the military sales and the military uh, relationship. Um, uh, from the American perspective, there's probably two, two issues that, that are looking at with this regard, this tightening of ties, which is, you know, Russia's access to um, uh, you know, their bases in, the, in, in Egypt, the military access, but also this ad advanced weaponry. Um, but, you know, we've also, as I mentioned earlier, there, we've also seen increased trade, increased Russian direct investment, all these new um, agreements being signed for industrial zones. 
that promise to create jobs. So this is a whole new dimension um, that people are seeing. Uh, and I, I don't, I haven't seen any, you know, polls or surveys about where Egyptians stand vis-a-vis vis-a-vis um, -vis Russia in particular, uh, but there's certainly also a very close relationship between Sisi and Putin. I think today the Egyptian foreign minister or yesterday was in, in, in Moscow as part of, um, uh, in, for, for talks regarding uh, the very sensitive dispute over the Nile Dam uh, between Sudan and Ethiopia. So we, we see sort of a new role for Russia brokering these talks at a time when you know President Trump just a few days ago, um, you know, made comments that were not exactly helpful or created a conducive environment for talks. So, so I think that it's interesting to also see this within the larger context of you know America's role in the region, but particularly the um, American-Egyptian relationship. Yeah, uh, Marissa, you you perfectly anticipated the final question. Uh, which uh, was exactly about the Grand Ethiopian uh, Water Renaissance Dam uh, situation, and and the question was from Mary uh, Jane Cober. Uh, but let me let me also add. I think uh, you've both made you know not just by asserting that Russia is important or that the Egypt Russia relationship is important, uh, but by kind of explaining some of the many ways in which Russia is simply acting uh, when others are not really underscored this point that uh, I, I uh, came up in a conversation with some European colleagues yesterday, which is the, the fundamental misunderstanding, I think it's almost a, a misunderstanding of economics, uh, confusing absolute advantage with comparative advantage. In other words, it may, may be that the United States or China or Europe would have an absolute advantage were it to choose to focus on any one of these problems in an effective way. We have all the resources, we have all the diplomats, we have the money, et cetera. Uh, but we don't, because there are other things we're spending our time on. And so the comparative advantage goes to Russia in this case. It is, it is acting and it is making an impact. And uh, I wonder, you know, Tarek, I would invite you to, to comment on the dam situation as well, but in the three minutes or so that we have left also to offer any closing thoughts that, that either of you may have. Uh, on the dam, I think it's actually, uh, without doubt, the most important topic for Egypt and Russia is more or less seen as an ally here. I will not go into too much details because there are only I understand less than two minutes uh, left. Uh, and that's probably a complicated topic. But there's one point that you mentioned, I think worth highlighting, which is US, Europe, Russia, with regard to Egypt, but also with regard to the Arab world. For many, many people in the Arab world, there's no one US and there's no one Europe. There are different voices coming out from, from the US and many voices coming out from Europe. And some of them would be seen in some way, one of them would, some of them would be seen in another way. Different interpretations of what the US means because of the plurality in the US, because of the plurality in the European Union and different positions and interests and ideologies and what have you. Russia has one voice. And therefore, it's very easy for people in the Arab world to understand it, and especially for decision makers to say, yeah, I can deal with that. It's very easy, very to the point. So you see my point. It's also very um, interesting from a perception point of view, as well as from decision making in specific dossiers. I'll stop here because I know time is, is running out. Marissa, final word. Uh, I would just go back to this to this sort of you know initial point uh, to follow up on uh, Tare sort of you know connecting um, you know Russia the U.S. and Europe uh, with the region is is to encourage to continue to look at you know this particular relationship through that prism 
because part of it is very much a reflection of, you know, uh, sort of um, tectonic shifts that we've seen in the region in recent years. Um, and uh, uh, the US administration that promised to retreat uh, and is seen as retreating. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see um, moving ahead um, how, you know, if there is um, uh, a new administration, how all of these relationships will be seen, whether differently or, or continue to be looked at the same way. So I think that's an important way, to, um, important prism through which we can look at this relationship. Well, thank you. Thank you both very much. I think certainly uh, what you both said justifies continuing to pay attention to a subject that may have faded during the lost decades uh, since the Cold War, uh, but uh, we'll be sure at the Wilson Center that the next decades are not lost. So thank you so much, Tarek. Thank you, Marissa. Uh, thank you to the Middle East program and to our AB team. And thank you, uh, everyone who's joined us for this conversation and sent in your questions. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Matt.